Hey, everyone, and welcome to the State of the Art Podcast with me, your host, Ethan Appleby. I'm very excited to bring you along as I dive into conversations with amazing people who are at the intersection of art and technology. Each week, you'll hear a different angle about how tech is bringing radical change in the way all of us interact with art. We have on artists to first-time collectors, as well as CEOs from some of the top digital art companies. We'll also look at the effects social media sites and crowdsourcing platforms are having on the art world and explore how other creative industries, such as music and fashion, were democratized using technology. So before we get started, I want to ask, did you catch our earlier episode with Patreon, the site that gets creators paid by running a membership business for their fans? Look, we liked it so much and we're so inspired that we created our own Patreon page. Really, we did it for two reasons. One, it lets us connect with you, our fans and listeners. And two, it helps us continue to make great content, get on better speakers, and find creative ways to continue this conversation with art and tech. So look, you can pledge as little as a dollar and become one of our patrons. To do so, check out patreon.com slash state of the art. This week, we're bringing you another live podcast. You know, when I started state of the art, I hadn't given much thought to doing live panels but it very much fits into our mission, which is to raise awareness and broaden the conversation. And it is a testament that it's working that we continue to be invited to speak at these events. So without further ado, I'm excited to bring you our panel, Is Art for Everyone? A discussion about how tech is disrupting the traditional art world model, originally recorded live at The Battery in San Francisco on April 11th, 2018. Our panelists include Erica Gangsai, Head of Interactive Media at SFMOMA, Jen Beckman, the CEO of 20x200, and Andrew Herman, founder of French Girls and Mini Canvas. These guests offer a comprehensive and insightful overview of how tech is disrupting traditional artwork models and how that is affecting accessibility. So now, on to the panel. Hello. Hi. How's everyone doing? Um, my name's Ethan. I am the host of a podcast called State of the Art, where we look at the intersection of art and technology. And I was really excited, actually, when I talked to Candice and Matt about coming and, and bringing an amazing panel together, um, because San Francisco is obviously sort of the, the mecca when it comes to technology. Um, and when it comes to the arts, I think it's still a, a growing, aspiring city. And so uh, really excited to have have all of you here and, and, and seeing most of you in the front here who need to be educated on art. It's, it's a really good, good audience. So anyways, we're going we're gonna to dive in today. And I think when we think about art and technology, uh, especially in the city of San Francisco, it usually goes down the road of, of sort of the how everyone in technology and is sort of kicking the artists out. And what we want to do in this is really explore like how is technology enabling artists? How is it enabling discovery? How is it doing for so many other industries where it's made it more accessible and more enjoyable and cheaper? Uh, how is it, how is it bringing that into the arts? And so I have an incredible panel here today who comes from literally the museum space to sort of the, the, the commerce space to the education space, uh, which is going to talk about things of, of democratization when it comes to, when it comes to the art world. How does that sound? All right, good. 
I, uh, how many of you here own art, an art piece, an original art piece in here? How, how, that's awesome. How many of you can Maybe a loaded crowd at the battery, by the way. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and by the way, I should say this is being recorded for a podcast. So there's like thousands of people who are also listening to this right now as well. So really, really get Hello, loud. all of you out there in radio land. Yeah. How many of you uh, consider yourself a collector? See, to me, that's so interesting because if you own an art piece, you, you are, uh, you know, a collector of art. And so, anyways, let's dive into that. Um, when before we start, though, can we just go down and have all of you introduce yourselves? Sure. So, um, my name is Andrew Herman. I am one of the co-founders and CEO at uh, an app called French Girls. Um, and French Girls is a community for digital artists. Uh, as in draw me like one of your French girls, if anybody doesn't get the pun. Uh, it is not pornography, although most people think it is. Uh, but, but, um, but our most recent initiative um, is a new product called that we're calling Mini Canvas, which is uh, an art education product that hopefully will be uh, available in the next few months. Uh, my name is Jen Beckman. Oh, I think it's on switch. Oh, yeah. there we go. Technology. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. I haven't done a panel in a while. <laughs> Hi, my name is Jen Beckman. I'm the founder of a website called 20 by 200, which is a site that sells affordable art. And our motto is actually, it's art for everyone. Um, and we have been around for a little bit more than a decade. And I come from a little bit of a schizophrenic background. I worked in technology for many years um, out here in the Bay Area. And then in 2003 in New York City, I opened a gallery, which um, I had on Spring and Bowery in New York for 11 years, um, and founded 20 by 200 contemporaneously with that. Um, and I recently relocated to San Francisco full time, which is weird, but that's a whole other story. Welcome. <laughs> um, hi, I'm Erica Gangsy. I'm the head of interpretive media at SFMAMA. And so we're a multimedia storytelling department, in-house digital storytelling department. Um, we have uh, an app that serves audio content for museum visitors to learn more about artworks. We have a podcast series called Raw Material. Uh, we have an artist studio visit and interview program and um, a, an experimental games initiative and a few other programs, including on-site learning spaces. And I've been at SFMOMA for 12 years, um, and I'm also a practicing artist. Wonderful. So what does, I mean, when you think about sort of art and technology or technology in other industries, it's, it's about sort of democratizing or disrupting a space. When you think about it in the art world, what does democratizing art mean to you? Um, so uh, for us, the way that we've been looking at it is um, that, you know, a lot of the ways that you traditionally think of technology democratizing a medium um, has you know has actually been done for art in the visual world for a very long time in terms of amplifying the net exposure and sort of just increasing the presence um but one of the things that we think about a lot is that the uh the, the real problem that we're seeing sort of in the in the consumership of art is that the average sort of literacy of the the consumer is much lower for um, for visual art than it is many other media. So the the example I always give is like, 
you know, in music, people have a general idea. Even if you're not a musician, you understand things like tempo and rhythm and and uh, melody and harmony. And like, you know, you might not have a textbook definition, but you kind of get it, right? You have a sense of it because culturally music is very important to us. But whenever you talk about like line quality or, you know, turning form or, you know, the very basics of visual art, uh, the literacy in this culture is very, very, very low. So when we look at democratizing art for us, the question we're asking is, how can we get sort of as far upstream in in the consumer's life cycle of appreciation as possible, which is why we are really dedicated to uh, investigating the in the education around the art. Education's actually always been an important aspect of what we've done as well. One of the things that I found having a gallery in New York for a long time, we opened with this sort of live with art, it's good for you, this idea that we would be a welcoming place that had a rigorous program where people, giving people an entry point into a world that seemed very intimidating. Um, and we sort of did all the things that we intended to do, but found that people were still really uptight about it. They felt like there was stuff that they had to know. They didn't trust their feelings about work. And my whole thing has always been that living with art is an amazing, enriching experience. And I want people to do that. And I get really excited about what is enabled by the idea that if everybody feels like art collecting is something that they can do, that economy that's spawned from that in terms of how it can support artists making work is really exciting. But people are afraid to take the plunge because they feel like there's all this stuff that they have to know before they can have an opinion. So we've always been about sort of a combination of educating people um, about artists and the work and what informs the practice or a specific piece, but also giving them permission to like something because they like it. And if you like something because it's a specific color, that's okay. Please don't stop there. Like, don't have a whole green house or, you know, but, you know, for me, I think a lot about like whatever it takes for somebody to get hungry is fine. And then, but you have to give them a path and that path has to be both welcoming, but also challenging because I don't think a world where people only engage with art that was pretty or aesthetically pleasing or popular would be a sad world. So um, we've always sort of thought about the balance. And so education has always been really important. But I, I would say that sort of preceding that education is that people really need permission. And I would also argue that I sort of think that you, I, I feel like buying art should feel like an obligation to a lot of people. Like I always say, I want people to have art collections that they talk about in the same way that like what novels they're reading um, in the Bay Area, what mountain bike you just bought, what gadget you're getting, your Tesla. I mean, if everybody who had a Tesla bought an equal amount in art and like PS they can, yeah. it would of, be transformative. Yeah. And Yet, because it doesn't have utility, um, a lot of people are like, well, I can't drive that to the store. Like, what about your soul? It actually yeah. matters. <laughs> yeah, it's like, instead of what yoga studio go do you go to, it's like, what gallery do you go right. to? Right, right. Mm -hmm. And also, I think that living with art is, is an amazing experience. Like, I, when I opened the gallery, I actually didn't have an art collection of my own, which was maybe not the wisest way to go into the gallery business, but... <laughs> Blindly. <laughs> Blindly. If I had known, maybe I wouldn't have done it, right? Yeah. But the relationship that you have with the art that you live in is really seriously magical. And I 
part of what drives me is that I feel like that magic, and sometimes I sort of describe it as a small joy, is something that everybody should feel in their lives and that everybody can because there are so many different points of accessibility now. So, yeah, I mean, I think for me, you know, you both said education and, you know, I think it really is the emphasis on STEAM as opposed to STEM that, you know, actually being an artist and thinking about all of the things that training as an artist allows you to do, you know, and it's something that I think about a lot. I went to an art school, I studied sculpture, and there's so many things that that taught me about improvisational thinking. The critique process taught me how to give a person constructive feedback without emotionally damaging them. (laughs) And um, so I think that, that, you know, there's something that you have to understand about what the what an arts education is and understanding that an art object is something that has a use value that goes far beyond yes. utility and so you know to your point about democratization for me you know at SF mama there are really two ways that we approach that one is by engaging a multiplicity of voices in our content, you know, the idea that art historians aren't the only people who are qualified to speak on a work of art. You know, we've got a pagan priestess talking about a Martin Purrier sculpture and the latent animistic qualities that she sees within it on our audio tour. And one of the things that we do with this multiplicity of voices is try to encourage people to form their own perspectives and to understand that their perspective is important. And then the second thing is opening up the problem space. So one of my favorite projects that we did was... um, two comedians from the show Silicon Valley, um, Camille Nanjani and Martin Starr, actually ragging on a lot of the artworks in SF Boma's permanent collection. And it was like, who is this guy? He just put a toilet on a pedestal and he, you know, he gets to be famous. You know? Or, you know, the surrealism gallery, like boob alert. Ooh, you know? And, um, you know, I think it's important for people to understand is like, oh, you think this is a hoax? Guess what? A lot of other people do too. And that's okay. That is a valuable starting point, And that is a teachable moment. And I think that people don't realize that actually feeling like something is a hoax is a provocative starting point for a really interesting conversation about an object. And that's really what an artwork should be is a jumping off point to have different ideas and new perspectives. So you use, Oh, go ahead. I I was just going to say, one of the things that like, I think is, is really important in how we look at things is, um, so, uh, so I really agree with you, Jen, that, that, uh, that, living with art should be a more important thing for more people. But I think one of the like polarizations in this conversation is that the people who are into art are so fucking passionate about it. And like they sink their heart and their soul into it. And it's so meaningful to them that it becomes very intimidating for people on the outside to try to break into that. And one of the things that like that, that we think about a lot is like, in music you have that world right like we all have our like jazz nerd friends that you're like god i get it like the energy and miles whatever right like (laughs) um and it's and it's not that that isn't legitimate like that is a great part of the music world but that takes a very like educated palette and someone who really appreciates it and understands it but you also have music that stretches all the way to the other end to like justin bieber right and like 
shit that's just fun and cool and it's not meant to be serious and it's not meant to be like some masterwork. It's just meant to be cool. And I think that's one of the one of the questions that we've been asking is why is it so hard for it to be a lightweight thing to include in your life? Why is it so hard for people to just like see something they like and get into it? Because in the visual world, like where where I came from in like Rust Belt, Pennsylvania, if I would have like told my dude friends I was shopping for art, they'd be like, hey. mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like it, it's just it's it's a very cultural thing, and that's one of the things that we're trying to figure out. And it, and it goes to what you talked about permission and people needing permission. Absolutely. What is it though? Like you mentioned, uh, I mean, having the two stars of Silicon Valley on, yeah. like why did that resonate with people? And what do you, what do you think it did to sort of make art more accessible? You know, I think that it really is again about acknowledging the f- things that people are already thinking and already feeling that they feel they shouldn't be, you know? And that's why, you know, you look at the work by the surrealists and you're like, these are people who are obsessed with sexuality and the human body. And yet people get embarrassed to, talk about it, you know, their conceptual art, you know, there is something truly problematic and really interesting about the idea that recontextualizing an object actually changes its meaning and thereby changes its value. And so I think exploring those things, but exploring them in a way that's approachable and funny and allowing people to get into it, um, on their on their own, that basically you start responding, and maybe also if somebody's taking a stronger position than you might, you might actually find yourself in an internal dialogue with the person who's raising the problem, um, defending the thing that you thought you didn't like. So I think that there's some really interesting things when you open up a space to create more questions, and you know, it's one of the things about you know, I work in interpretive media, which is. A little bit different than working in educational media, the idea of education being that there are facts and answers. Um, And the thing I like about interpretive is it's a little broader. You're not necessarily opening up somebody's head and trying to get facts in there so that they'll stick. You're trying to help them see something in a new way or provoke thoughts. And to me, there's no right answer. Yeah. Building off what 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 you were saying, you know, Andrew, with the uh, the way people approach it and taking it too seriously. You know, I was talking to Matt, who's the the curator here at the Battery, and he was saying still, like, there's people our age, younger, that come up and look at a piece and have no idea, like, how to even talk about it. You know, you talked about sort of opinionated people, and, and there are plenty of those in this room right now who would feel the same way when they came up to an art piece and just have, you know, no idea and be intimidated. I mean, why, just elaborate that, or, or Jen, if you want to elaborate on your thoughts on that. On why is it that people don't feel the right to have an opinion or why are they so intimidated when they... Well, I, I think a lot of people do have opinions and I think that a lot, they, they're afraid to vocalize them. I also think that it's important to understand that not, you know, we've been sort of talking about a narrow swath of art right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, one of the reasons, so as I said earlier, when I opened the gallery... I didn't have art experience. And so my program largely focused on photography to start with because I knew how to look at photographs. I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, if you, you know, most people are, most people have visual literacy if you, you know, and so I I actually think that having visual literacy is a great starting point for visual art, right? If we're talking specifically about visual art. Um, and art can be a lot of different things, and it doesn't all have to be in a museum for you to be a collector. And I think, 
an artist doesn't have to have come up within the canon for them to be a valid artist as well. And so I, I so some of it I think is broadening the perspective. I would also argue too, sort of going back to what you were saying, um, I, you know, how many people grew up in homes that have nothing on the walls at all? So, so a few people, but not, not that many people. Yeah. So it might be calendars, it might be family photos, it might be souvenirs from trips, but still people are living with visual stuff on their walls. And, you know, we, I mean, it's interesting, actually, we, um, we, you know, we primarily focus on working with living artists and doing editions with contemporary artists, but we also have a vintage editions program. And that's been a really important part of the business because it's been about telling the story of art over the years. And, um, you know, we've done a lot of black and white photography. We do, um, we do Audubon prints sometimes. And the first time that we released an Audubon print, how many people know who Audubon is? That's pretty good. Like, I felt really weird about it because I felt like everybody's seen an Audubon print. What is it for those who don't know? It's so he isn't, he was a naturalist and he made these beautiful portfolios of the birds of America, which, um, which a lot of people had in their homes as reproductions when they were growing up and you might've seen them in a doctor's office or, you know, um, yeah. My, Audubon. <laughs> um, and, um, and so I think that um, when we first introduced him to our audience, it felt a little weird because I felt like everybody would be familiar with him, but people actually were not. And um, they learned a lot. And it also meant to them that something that was beautiful and had a sort of scientific root in it could also be considered art as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about the objects that people are living with. I actually had a colleague who was doing a sort of anthropological research project where he was driving out to towns in the Central Valley and mm -hmm. just interviewing people about the art that they had at their homes. And part of that was to, you know, help him inform the work that he was doing for us at the moment. It's like, okay, the the thing that is on your wall that you value the most is a sun-faded Van Gogh poster that belonged to your mother, you know? And um, I think that there are a few things in there, and I think that one is that there's a real dichotomy in art that I think has been sort of fueled by the gallery system, mm -hmm. that um, there there's fine art, there's high art, and then there's pop. Pop. Or, exactly. Or kitsch. Right. You know, and that um and that there's this bifurcation between kitsch or populist culture and the things right. that are supposed to be high culture. And I think that in some ways, you know, when we talk about accessibility or we talk about democratization, we're talking about a sort of intentional distance or separation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like there's just such a to me it's a it's so like obvious you see it everywhere. Like it's just such a cultural aversion and, and there's like, you know, if you do the research, there's a bunch of reasons why it happened, right? Like historically um, art w w is a very aristocratic thing. And in America we have a blue collar buying ethic. There's, you know, the price point issue that like you walk into a coffee shop and see a little eight by 10 canvas that's 500 bucks. And you're like, what the fuck is this? Like, <laughs> like I, you know, I come from like coal town America where like 
it's that is seen as just like absolutely frivolous, right? So of course you're not going to get like it's alienating on every level. Like you try to talk to someone about it and either like you're going to get like, dude, you're gay or you're going to get someone who's like blowing your mind with all the things they know and you don't feel like you can keep up. Right. And so there's like, you're absolutely right. We're talking about this very narrow swath of art, but there's a difference between the artist's relationship with art and the consumer's relationship with art. And the people that are kind of in this on the inside and understand this can see behind the curtain. Like, they can see this spectrum. But the average consumer here in America, they don't see the diversity. Like, they don't understand it. So for them, the art world is that narrow swath. And it's not real, but it's perceived. And that's, you know, more powerful than real. And it takes so much for people to think of themselves as corrector- collectors. Like, if you're not Eli Brode, then you're not really a collector. You know? And, right. um, you know, anybody who has, you know, you got a postcard at a flea market and you stuck it in a frame, you're a collector. You know, um, there, you know, there's there's so many ways to you know curate a selection of visual objects in your own life, and I think one of the other things that is part of this conversation is that you know when you look at arts education programs, programs that are dedicated to training visual artists, su- success is actually defined fairly narrowly. You know, you're groomed to find a gallery, you're groomed to get, uh, you know, your, your dream in life is supposed to be a mid-career retrospective at the Whitney, you know, and um, there's so many different ways to be successful as an artist, and I think that it's one of the reasons why people stop, you know, starting around elementary school, junior high, people stop thinking of themselves as artists, and you know, every year that passes, people stop thinking of themselves as artists, and I think it's because, um the role of the artist in society has become more narrowly defined than is appropriate. And it's that, I mean, one of the things we talk about a lot is the mythos of the artist, right? Like, and, and I think that's also largely part there's again, like culturally our perspective of artists is that they're like these magical unicorns that prance around and say weird things and like somehow manifest ink on canvas. Right. Like it's, it's, and like, Again, the weird thing about it is like, that is true, right? Like at the extreme end, that is absolutely true. But like, you know, if you get into like comic book artists or graffiti artists or like, you know, it's like saying that all musicians are like carrying their cello into the subway and, you know, like gritting it out. And it's like, it's not true. Like where is... Where is in the art world the analog to like the rock star or like the relatable like thing that you just think is cool? You know what I mean? And it's again, like we we think a lot about the mythos of the artist. And for me, it's because our culture is so unaware of um, of the practice of art of the work that goes it like to me, it's completely defamatory to the artists themselves as well, because it doesn't acknowledge the years of hard work that have to go into being any good, you know? So it's like just this weird phantom that we have in our collective imagination yeah, that you emerged fully formed as a, right. as a singular genius and Absolutely. that it didn't take years of blood, sweat, tears and right. failure. Yeah. yeah, and somehow people get it for artists or for musicians that like, mm-hmm. I don't know, everybody has a buddy that's like been in a band and struggled maybe, but for some reason there's just like, there's a there's a, an, a wall there, there's an opaqueness for consumers with visual artists. Yeah, 
What about, I mean, especially coming from sort of the art world, when you talk about populism and, and democratizing the art world, they often think of sort of dumbing it down, you know, and that you're going to buy an art piece from an artist who isn't sort of qualified. I mean, how do you react to that? I think it's less about, it's not about dumbing it down. It's about making it relatable. I mean, we have a perceptual scientist on our on our audio guide and a futurist, you know, the futurist talks about minimal and pop art, you know, from the perspective of how things changed in the 1960s with that, you know, with uh, inventions and technology, um, you know, and I think it's more about just finding an angle that works and it's not about, um, it's not about dumbing it down. I think it's about acknowledging that there are a lot of different perspectives and that those perspectives are valid, you know, in the way that, people don't feel comfortable like okay i you know maybe you don't like experimental noise music maybe you love experimental noise mu music and you hate justin bieber and you feel empowered to have that opinion right. and you know i think that part of it is because of the relatability and i think part of that too is also that you know musicians there's a lot of persona by necessity that goes into their presentation of their product whereas with artists a lot of the time it's uh presented in a decontextualized white box when you think about the do you have something you want to add what oh no i was just <laughs> reflecting on what i just said it's <laughs> good <Sorry> about it. <laughs> falling in love with the echo yeah, it was like decontextualized white box, white box, white box. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's not, by the way, totally not intimidating language yeah. to yeah. someone who's not an artist. When you, when you stare into the uh, decontextualized white box, the decontextualized white box stares, stares back, back at, at you. you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Bringing it back to the technology piece, what patterns do you see in terms of the relationship between art and tech and sort of what has worked and what, what hasn't worked? I, I mean, I think that like, so th you could argue that art was actually one of the first beneficiaries of, um, you know, of, of the internet and what technology has done to scale up a lot of the other uh, creative outlets out there because, you know, like JPEG and GIF have been around for how long, right? Like people have been sharing that stuff and spreading it. Um, you can argue that it hasn't done great things for the artist, but in terms of like the scale, I think there's a lot of that going on. I mean, I think right now, probably the single most powerful tool for an artist that's technology-based is Instagram. I mean, the, the amount of reach that you get there, it's a medium that is built to support um, you know, to support visual content. Um, and I know there's a lot of artists making their careers there. So I think that's, that's probably one of the most, um, most sort of tangible technologies for the working artist. I know also um, a lot, you know, one of the buzzier things now is using blockchain for um, validation. That's, you know, everybody wants to talk about that now to make sure that you actually own the, yeah. the artifact that you bought, which is, um, it's cool. I mean, it's solving a problem. I think it introduces some other problems, but, uh, but it is solving a problem and it's something exciting. I, I mean, I do think that, um, I mean, one of the amazing things about the internet for an artist has been that it's, and it's totally disrupted the gallery system as well, that an artist can develop their own audience. They can connect with their own audience and communicate with them. Um, one of the things I think about a lot is that artists, 
become artists to make art. And so if the, if, if the more that marketing yourself and developing an audience and having a relationship with the audience becomes a criteria for becoming a successful artist, the more that it's detracting from the art making and also sort of limiting the type of artists that people encounter. And so, I mean, I think it's, I think it's great and it's important and I think it, it's very well suited for some people. But one of the things I think about a lot is sort of how, you know, when, when um, with 20 by 200, we've sort of thought about like, well, artists are good at making art. Maybe they don't want to be customer service people. Maybe they don't want to be production people that are making a print over and over again. Maybe they don't want to do be marketing people. Um, and again, I think that there are some artists that really thrive and have you know have built huge followings online. But it it it's a it's a specific skill set. Um, and you know, on the gallery side, I think um, one of the negative things about technology has been that people. I mean people buy stuff from JPEGs all the time now. And the experience of going into a gallery and seeing a curated exhibition has become minimized in importance so much. And like, for me, when I was an art dealer, like that, when I had my physical gallery, that working with an artist to mount an exhibition was one of the true joys of doing it and having people come and see the show and interact with the work. But now most gallerists are doing six art fairs a year, eight art fairs a year. They're sort of, you know, traveling salespeople going constantly around the world and like, you know, texting, texting collectors, JPEGs to sell pieces before the show's open. And so um, in that regard, like, it, you know, to me, it's a little bit of a diminishment of the experience of art and the experience of, you know, seeing an exhibition and getting to see a body of an artist's work rather than an isolated image um, is, is challenging as well. And also really sort of people feeling driven that they have to create stuff that is going to function well in that medium um, in order to be successful. So I, mean, I think one of the things that's been really exciting for me um, has been, you know, just seeing with every year that passes the proliferation of new consumer facing creativity tools. You know, there's so many 3D render engines, you know, there's so many amazing projects being built with Unity, you know, there are just so many incredible platforms and opportunities. And one of the things that I love is to see the democratization of those spaces, you know, that you know, back in the early days of uh, computer games, you know, people actually used to have to, you know, get the code out of a magazine and code it into their computer in order to be able to play a very simple game. And then for a long time, most people had a consumer relationship with video games. And we're now getting to the point where people can create their own graphics, create their own games, create their own mixed reality experiences. And I think for me, it's really exciting to see the early days of these new media, because every time a new technology is invented, it dramatically changes the course of art history. I mean, think about what the invention of photography did for painting. When you're, you lift the representational burden of painting and drawing, painting and drawing no longer have to be accurate. There's no fidelity to visual reality. Painting can become an expressive tool, and then you have fauvism and, you know, abstract expressionism and on and on and on. And so to me, that's one of the things that's really exciting. And I know that it's also daunting for a lot of people I know who are painters because, you know, painting has, uh, you know, been reinvented, you know, for every, every century of human history, painting has been, been reinvented. So, um, it's just, it's interesting to think about that. Um, you know, I think that to me, the real downside is the distractedness. Um, 
I work at an institution that is premised on the idea of original objects existing in a single physical space that people then travel to to behold and engage with. And so when we, you know, for example, and I, you know, and then the irony is that I serve up digital content within that physical context in order to assist further engagement with those original objects. And so um, what you know we try to do as much as possible is to have our app content be you know a guided looking experience. You know the interface should be invisible. You know you should you know press play, stick it in your pocket, and forget that it's there, so that you can look at the thing in front of you that you came to see. And um, I think that there's this idea you know about the and you know this has been going on for a long time, like art in the age of mechanical reproducibility. Um, you know that. Uh, this idea that a reproduction of an object or an image of an object can somehow give you a sense of the object itself when in fact there is there is still something to physical reality and real life and actual person to person or person to object experiences i mean here we are in this room woo yeah. <laughs> uh, but it- in the same in the same breath though like it you know one thing that artists do really well throughout you know the eons that there has been art is adapt and change and you can't i mean you know y- y- you could argue that technology and art are two sides of the same coin right like artists will always find a way to make things interesting um and, you know, I mean, this sort of starts to get back into the debate of, like, the sellout or cheapening, which I think is, like, a fruitless but fun college stoner debate. Um, and, uh, but, but you know, like, it's it's interesting to see, like, the, you know, the, the issue of distractedness. Again, like, I think these, these are issues, it, you, you kind of have to frame it, because, like, that's almost more of an issue at this point for the consumer than it is for the artist. Like, yeah, an artist has the distractions in terms of, like, they're trying to figure out ways to get out there, but presumably artists have always had to do that. Like, it's never been an easy to be an artist, but the opportunities are that there's new media, like, there's new ways, like, not only is there new ways to get your name out there, there's new things to create. And, like, you know, what if you're being an opportunist or a professional about it, then, like, what better way to sort of, like, get your name out there to be in a new media Um or if you're just like the pure creative, what's more exciting than than being the first person to put their footprint on a technology? And so, so I think it's interesting. Like it's it's very interesting because it's easy to talk about what diverges the artists from the technologists. But from my perspective, I think they share so much more in common. Um, yeah. Like they're both idealists who have some vision in their head that they're willing to like starve on the street for just to see it come to life. Yeah, well, and what we're talking about is innovators, you know, people who are thinking outside the box. Well, and I think, you know, the thing that's interesting is you think about, especially with conceptual art, you know, once conceptual art became, uh, you know, to the extent that it is a respectable mainstream form of art practice, um, what you have is artist as inventor. And yeah, I mean, you know, or the earliest photographies were, I mean, the earliest photographers were inventors also. You basically have uh, artists as innovators, artists as inventors. And I think the thing that's really interesting to me about the sort of culture between artists and technologists in the city right now is how much 
bifurcation there is when you are really dealing with two creative classes, um, one of whom is being, for the most part, far more generously compensated for their labor. And so I think that, you know, it's interesting to find ways to bring creative people together. And I think that, you know, t technology companies are really only scratching the surface of what having artists involved could mean. You know, you think about, and this goes back to this sort of expansion of understanding around the skill set, because being an artist is incredibly difficult. The amount of rigor, the amount of research, the amount of simple honesty with yourself about what you're trying to do and what your perspective truly is and what your reasons are for doing it. And when you imagine bringing people like that in as advisors on creative projects, you, know, you imagine that that would only make things better. I want to take a quick break to tell you more about our Patreon page. As you know, here at State of the Art, we want to build the art and tech community, increase the conversation, and we love bringing you guests from across the art and tech world. But the thing is, there's so much more we want to do. We want to continue to bring you great guests. We want to do live podcasts. We want to increase the frequency. To do that, though, we need your support. Visit our page at patreon.com slash state of the art. Pledge just a dollar and you'll get access to exclusive content, behind the scenes footage, and a chance to be our super fan of the week. And let me tell you, this is pretty cool. Super fans will get a shout out on next week's episode and a chance to show your art and tech thoughts, events, or whatever within our social feeds. So go to patreon.com slash state of the art and become one of our patrons today. Now back to the episode. Yeah, the, the other thing that like uh, that I think we're waiting for is a way like <laughs> that the role of technology always for any industry is to be a scaler, right? And for me, one of the problems with um, the traditional art world, obviously, I, I will proffer that I am a little skewed on this, but like one of the problems with the traditional art world is that like it is very like the very foundation of it is is based in scarcity, right? Like it's the fact that you have this one artifact that makes it like the fact that it's one of them makes it invaluable, um, which is like great and beautiful. And like, you can talk about that, but like on the other end, it's also really damaging to an artist who like wants to get their work out there and like has to figure out how they like, like, how do you, how do you get the exposure of like a stadium rock band? But like, you have this one canvas that, you know, like that you're trying to get out in the world. So like, I mean, I know that's a little hyperbolic. I'm but... just imagining a painting playing AT&T park. <laughs> right, it's just like, right, right. But like, <laughs> but really like that's, I mean, I think that's a question worth asking though, is like, what is fundamentally so different about visual art versus any other medium that scales better? And that to me is like one of the fundamental things is that it's based in scarcity. I think well, also the scarcity, I will say that the scarcity was also a function of the fact that there is such a small audience of people who were buying art and the audiences that were groomed to be collectors and to buy art were really encouraged to lock into the fact that they were owning something that nobody else owned because, you know, if there's only one of something, then everybody wants it. 
that, you know, and so that's, I mean, so the origins in it were that, and so um, to your point earlier too, like now that we're sort of in this era of reproducibility, especially like as it pertains to photography, we sell prints, you know, the idea of a limited edition is really a, is a conceit when things can be reproduced again and again. And so, um, I mean, I, I think that there's, there's an opportunity now in many ways because of technology to develop a much bigger audience for art, for, for art collecting and many more opportunities for people to collect art affordably. And then, you know, and I also think that it's really important to realize that as you were saying earlier, you don't just have to buy priceless originals in order to be a collector. Um, you can be a collector of prints. You can be a collector of photography. You can be, uh, you know, people, people collect all kinds of things and being an artist is hard and supporting artists is important. And I think that that's also part of what the engine of collecting should be. And that's one of the things I get frustrated about when I feel like people are intimidated or reticent, like, artists are vital to our culture and they need to be supported. And just because you can't drive your art piece to the store to buy groceries doesn't mean that it's not important. Like you, you know, we should be supporting artists in our culture and we should feel like it's something that people should be doing. And I think, again, there are more opportunities at more, at more price points than there ever have been before, which is exciting. Yeah. Y yeah. Uh, like uh like what you guys are doing is amazing. And, and, and I, that's what I, I was looking I, for. I <laughs> so I think we can all agree. Good layout. <laughs> Good layout. That 20 by 200 is the future for art. Um, Thank I, you for having me. <laughs> Just walk off the stage. <laughs> I mean, I completely agree with that. Like that, you know, I, again, from the consumer standpoint, we have a blue collar buying ethic in this country. And like, that's, you know, that's part of why like there's stigma around the word collector and there's stigma around, uh, around the idea of prints, right? Like, it feels like you're somehow cheapening it. But from my perspective, like, until we can solve this problem of figuring out how to really let artists scale their work, like, really give credibility to widespread scale of an artist's work, you're gonna have this problem where, like, like, so you talked about the history of it being that only, there was very few people that could afford it and, like, or that were interested in buying it, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is that there's still only few winners then, right? Like you only have a very select few of artists who, who are either really fucking good or got really lucky. Um, who, a lot of MFAs out there. <laughs> right. No, it's really. And, and you're leaving the rest <laughs> behind. But, you know, you, you started the conversation with democratization. I mean, that's what democratization really looks like is that you can actually spread that around a little bit and start to, you know, let the rising tide lift all ships. But there also has to be demand. And I think that that's one of the challenges as well is that, I mean, and I, I guess I would argue that there's more of a problem with demand right now and also people being able to, so I think that everyone can and should make art, but not everybody is an artist. And I think, you know, one of the things that we've always tried to be really disciplined about is that when we present an artist and their work on the site, that they have a really credible practice. And by credible practice, I mean that that's someone who's really dedicated. It doesn't mean that they don't have a day job because lots of artists have day jobs, but it means that they are doing that hard work that you were talking about. Um, not that I want them to suffer, um, but like that I, but, but I do think that there's a lot of pain and sacrifice involved in being an artist and creating work and that, you know, just making a one-off thing that's pretty 
like if that's the thing that you're buying, that's to me like a little bit lightweight in terms of collecting. And so I, so I think, I guess I, you know, again, I think that making things, creating things and that activity is something that everybody like can and should feel free to engage in. But I also think, and this is something that's definitely been challenging for us when we started in 2007, um, there weren't, a lot of other places out there that were selling prints. And now there are a lot of places that sell prints and, you know, you can go to the website and you can have it on canvas or you can have it on Plexi. You could change the colors of flowers from pink to purple. <laughs> like uh, you can, you know, and, and so there, so it's sort of paint by numbers really. <laughs> and that's super decorative. And yeah. again, if you're looking for something over your, I've always said, and this was true at the gallery too, I'm never going to make somebody feel bad if they come in and say, I'm looking for something to go over my couch. Yeah. That's totally like, if that's your entry point, cool. We can talk about that. But I also think that you shouldn't be asking somebody, you shouldn't be asking the artist to create the thing that goes over your couch. Yeah. You should be discovering the artist who's created it. Yeah. If that makes sense. And that the artist, so basically an artist goes through a series of decisions, you know, right. starting from the time that they decide what medium they're going to be working in. And that then as a collector of art, what you're doing is going through a series of decisions as well. And that collecting is a creative process or can be a creative process if people feel empowered. Um, something just to go back to something that you said about scaling and, you know, what you guys have been talking about. So, yeah, I think a really interesting example is an artist like Murakami who has a global brand. You know, his um, you know, the art historical reference points, the painting skill, the credibility, you know, it's all undeniable. But he also has a global brand. He's got a handbag line with Louis Vuitton. You know, when I saw his show, he had the same print as a painting and as wallpaper behind the painting. And so I think, you know, you have artists who are playing in a really savvy way and sort of, you know, taking Warhol's factory self-promotion model and extrapolating it forward to the 21st century. Um, and so I think that examples like that, because, you know, he also has a studio cohort model where he'll find other artists whose projects he believes in and bring them under his wing. And um, so I think that, you know, imagining more people scaling in that way, but there is something very blatantly capitalist about that in a way that some artists are never going to be comfortable with. And so I think the flip side for me is as things get more technologically oriented and more scalable, making sure that there is still a place within the art world and the gallery system for people who aren't trying to play in that space. You know, if you just want to be on Instagram, you know, if you want to be on Instagram, that's fine. But if you don't want to have a web presence, that needs to be fine too. And that's, I think, where a lot of uh, more technophobic artists are getting left behind. Yeah, and I think like there will <laughs> uh, there will always be artists who are, are averse to employing technology as a, you know, there will always be purists, and we need them, right? But but this issue of like getting too capitalist with art, like that's. I mean, that's where I like start to lick my chops, right? Because once you get that, um, once you get that cycle going, where you actually start to fill out sort of everything in the spectrum, mm -hmm. from like the one end being a very accessible, a very popular, a very you know, it doesn't have to be technical. It's easy to get. 
um, but high scale all the way up through what I would consider to be more from the consumer's perspective, a fine art world, which is, you know, the people who are going to be uh, going to school and demanding respect for their approach. And, you know, again, like my whole thing is that exists, like that full spectrum exists in other media. Um, And, you know, like another thing I like to talk about other than music, because music is like so ingrained in us that it's hard to like break out of that. Another interesting example is food. Like in the eighties, if you were going out to eat, it was like, we're getting steak or we're getting pasta, right? We've seen this foodie revolution that has happened where like, now you have like Thai Mexican aquatic fusion, right? Like, and, and that has largely happened because, um, because technology has allowed it to scale. You started to get these communities pop up where people could connect, um, and you know, they could start to share opinions. Yelp. Yeah. Yelp was a huge part of that, right? Like being able to leave the reviews and stuff like that. Um, and now you, you, you have this full spectrum, like on one end you have the gastro pub. That's like some dude who was good at barbecuing and wanted to open a joint and people love it, which I would consider to be more like the populist form of it all the way up through, you know, a, a three-star restaurant. Um, why, what is so fundamentally different about visual art that we can't have that type of consumership around it on the one end? I, I do. I, I guess I do think stuff like that has, I, stuff like that has existed. I mean, uh, I mean, going back to your example of music, like poster art has, I mean, and poster art is very populist, right. And has existed for a long time. There was, uh, you know, career and Ives in the, late 1800s there was you know so i so again i i go back again and again to thinking about the demand side more than the supply side because i think that we can i think that any any well again sort of thinking about i think the challenge that artists have right now to some extent is how infinitely reproducible things are and so in a weird way like those um you know there are you know there are certain artists who make photographs who tear up the negative and you get the negative with the print because scarcity has become like that much more um, precious in this era of sort of infinite reproducibility. Reproducibility. (laughs) I got you. Thanks. (laughs) But like going back to the purest, I mean, when the the radio came out, right, there was a lot of people that were worried that, you know, you'd never go to listen to live music. It was actually quite the opposite, right? Like it really enabled and increased the attendance of live events. Yeah. yeah and I mean, tapes because you could record off the radio. Oh yeah. And or, then MP3s. Um, or like speech. all of the, all of the writing when the printing press was invented, you know, all of the writing, you know, color photography magazines like life, you know, it's like people will be bombarded with too many images and unable to understand what is real and what is, an illusion, yeah. <laughs> so do we think it's an accessibility issue? Do we think it's a cultural issue? I mean, and, and how can technology play a role in solving either one of those? Because it sounds like it's more of a, a cultural issue. Let me tell you what I think, Ethan. I think it's an education issue. Uh, no, I, like, I mean, that, that's my whole thing, right? Like, I, 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 to- it's, I, I don't think there's any argument that it's a cultural issue. And for me, the proof is in the pudding because there's not, like this is not a universal problem. There are cultures that do embrace this stuff a little bit more. And there is a little bit better culture around buying and, and sharing in visual art. Um, 
so Europe tends to have more respect for the classics, but definitely in Asia, like Asia is where, uh, you know, visual art is rock and roll, right? Like they have this whole manga culture where like that. And, and from my research, there's two reasons for it. The first is that their languages themselves, like the actual calligraphy, Mm. um, gives them a much higher understanding at a much younger age of what it takes to create things visually. And the other thing is that they have a common reference point. So um, it, this, it's an interesting point. But like, so for, for us in the West, our common reference point for music, which is ubiquitous in everywhere, basically comes from the blues, right? Like the one, four, five chord changes. And if you study the history of pop music in the West, like everything comes out of that. So whether you know it or not, like everything you're listening to on the radio is really not that diverse, right? Um, visually, that is not as much the case. In Asia, they have this common point of reference, which is manga. And it's not to say that that's like the only thing there, but it's a common reference point. Yeah. I think a lot. I mean, one of the things I think about a lot in terms of what keeps people from buying art is um, I feel like, especially in the United States, there's a fixation on utility and that people rationalize a lot of purchasing based on, I can use this. Oh, I need a t-shirt. I need a couch. I need a Tesla. Maybe. Um, not to harp on Teslas are beautiful cars. I would get one if I could. But so, so I think that people, um, again, I think that people tend to justify a lot of purchases and a lot of luxury purchases within the context of usefulness and art is not something that people can use. And then the next thing that they go to, if they can't use it is they want to rationalize it as an investment and, you know, well, how much is this going to appreciate when I buy it? And, you know, that's a terrible way, I, I would say, to approach building one's collection because historically speaking, the collections that have tended to appreciate, and it's a different, it's a different context now, but, you know, if you look at throughout history at the collections that have become these priceless collections, nine times out of ten, you're going to find that it was like these two weird people who mm-hmm. befriended a lot of artists and liked weird shit and th- accumulated a lot of it along the way because they couldn't help themselves. And so, you know, so if the engines for people acquiring art are kind of focused on those kind of more materialistic things. I think it's just, it's really hard to, to get people to wrap their heads around, around it. Well, and I think that that's, you know, where it becomes a little bit of uh, or maybe a lot of a communication issue because um, a lot of the dialogue is around um the successful collections, you know, the, the collections that have been absorbed into major museums. And there is a world of artists out there who are working very far outside the bounds. So the example that you gave about the blues, you know, I think that the consumption model of museums is not really so much the blues or rock and roll. It's more like the symphony in a lot of ways. And I think that that is really where the work needs to be done is, um, you know, on both sides for museums to meet people closer to where they are. And then for people to, and, you know, I think it's not just museums, but for artists to meet people where they are. And I think that it is, you know, there's not, um, there's not a very strong sort of, how do I put this? Um, yeah, there's not a very strong collecting culture outside of the sort of highest uh, financial echelons. And I think that that is really 
the problem is that artists aren't getting original objects into ordinary people's homes as much as, and that goes back to your point about living with art. And so I think it is about, um, you know, I mean, the art world sounds so monolithic. There's no such thing as the art world. It's all just individual people. And I think that a lot of the way that technology can be useful is helping individual people connect with other individual people and finding new ways to meet in the middle around these objects that are being created. I think that, I think that's what Instagram has done so well or why it's done well is because it tells a story. And that's a huge piece of buying art is telling that story and connecting with the artist. Are there other industries? We I heard the food industry, maybe the car industry. I don't know. Are there other industries that you think the art world can learn from in terms of adapting technology? I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, I think, I mean part of my entree into the art world was so like I said I didn't have any art myself when I opened my gallery but I did have I, w I was collecting things what I collected was mid-century furniture it wasn't like expensive but it was you know like this something that I had sort of researched and so I think a lot about like I, I think a lot about gateways and I think about them in terms of you know, what your area of interest is. If your area of interest is cars, there's actually a lot of interesting car art out there. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, I think a lot about sort of presenting stuff to people, like giving them a pathway in. And because, I, again, I think that people are intimidated and they feel like they have this weight of all they don't know on them to be able to have a point of interaction. Mm -hmm. And so, I, you know, I, I think that just sort of looking at what gets people excited about you know, like, you know, like where are places where people have collected things and how are, and how are people presenting collections and presenting creators? So, you know, to a certain extent, I mean, and there's a lot of art on Etsy, like, you know, Etsy is a really interesting marketplace. I don't look at it for art as much as I look at it for design stuff. I mean, I think the design world in general too, just sort of how are people being presented with stuff and educated and telling stories about, the people who created it and the people who are making the work. Yeah. And I think that is, um, yeah, the real thing. And so for me, uh, one industry that I learn from constantly is journalism, yeah. you know, that, you know, what I've, what I've learned from, you know, the New York times and from PBS documentary series about, um, how to tell stories and that you're know, really what you're doing, even if you're using technology as a medium to do it is you're connecting people to other people. And I think that that is one of the things that helps people feel less alienated by art is what, when they understand that the person who made it was just a really deep weirdo who found a thing that they just couldn't let go of. So they just kept doing it until they had a lot of whatever the product was. And um, then they had a museum show, you know, so like you do. But um, that, you know, the like human to human stories and, you know, the way that empathy is built and also the way that uh, journalists have had to adapt to technological changes. I think that a lot of people in my field are learning a lot from journalists uh, about how to approach multimedia storytelling. I think, um, yeah, I mean, any, for me, it's not a particular industry, but it's an idea, like tastemakers. Like, I think that there's a lot to be learned from um, any business, you know, like, like fashion comes to mind, right? Like when, when broken down to its very deconstructed core, like 
fashion is not something you need in much the same way that art, like it, there's, there's no real utility to it, but it is something that you live with and it's something that becomes part of your identity and it's, it's something that becomes part of your, your tribe, right? Like it, it very much um, makes you feel like you are who you are. Um, and, and I think there's a lot to be learned there in like, you know, not being um, quite as highbrow as the art world can tend to be to take, to just extend reach and to get it out there and to figure out what it is about the psychology of a consumer that makes them feel that way. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, like when you're living with art, if you can get people to do that, if you can get them in the door, like creativity of any type, as far as I'm concerned is very human, right? Like that's, that's what separates us from the animals is the fact that we can manifest something today that wasn't there yesterday. And so we will always resonate with that. But if, if cultural aversion is the issue, then it's really a simple problem of taste making. Like you just need to curb whatever the cultural tide is because there's no, like there's no material reason why it can't happen. Yeah. I always look at stitch fix as a really interesting case study and what they do where it's still a very personal experience that you're working with a tastemaker to find the fashion that you want, Mm -hmm. but they're backed by so much, you know, technology in terms of narrowing down the recommendations that they give you and, and how that can be applied to art because art is so subjective um, but yet people want that, that confidence to know what to buy, you know, very similar to, I think how Stitch Fix helps from a fashion perspective. Yeah. I think we, I mean, we've thought a lot, I mean, I, I worked at the gap in high school and, um, and it was during the Mickey Drexler era when he was sort of transforming it from a Levi's and sweatpants place into a, like the white, I'm old. I admit it. Um, but, you know, it was like this transition from, like, just because you don't have a lot of money to spend doesn't mean you shouldn't have, like, 100% cotton shirts. And, you know, it was like the kind of white shirt and khakis that became a uniform, right? And then Target, what Target did with design with the Michael Gray's collection and, like, then also looking at fashion, too, this idea that you can have, like, several different types of lines of things. You know, you can have a you, – you have couture and then you have the sort of – collab with Target kind of thing and that kind of continuum, I think of that as something that can really work in the art world because also it allows you to, I think, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot is how a piece of art that you own can connect you to an experience and that sort of ties out to going to a museum and like feeling like you can go to a museum and get something from the exhibition that you saw and experienced and who you were with and all that stuff. So maybe you're not gonna have the Murakami or maybe you're not even gonna have the Vuitton bag but you might have, you know, some sort of limited edition print. There's again, there's a continuum, and I think that people who get hooked will move along that continuum to become, you know, hungry for more precious items along the way. But they don't have to in order for there to be an engine that supports, you know, art collecting more broadly. Yeah. Well, I think there's also um, there's like a little bit of a perception of competition for resources issue where um, I think arts organizations often see themselves as in competition with each other when in fact we're part of a cultural ecosystem and anything that we can do to be, you know, be good citizens of that ecosystem and support and amplify each other's efforts um, is critical. And, you know, to me, I really don't see, you know, I, I I want there to be more projects. I want there to be more galleries. I want there to be more people selling their art out of box trucks that they also live in on the street. <laughs> you know, I just, I want more of all of that. I want more, too, you know, right? blankets, blankets, 
covered in forty dollar paintings right. next to galleries that are selling forty thousand dollar paintings. I want I want it all, and I want for people to feel empowered to acquire objects. Right. Yeah. Also, I think it's pronounced Target. That's true. <laughs> All right. Before we open up to questions, what are the technology? Are there technologies or trends that you see out there that you're excited about that you think will make art for everyone or art more accessible so that everyone in this room is raising their hand next time we have this panel and saying, I own a piece of art? Well, mini canvas will be educating the masses. Oh, gosh. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, I honestly think there's a lot of very, very interesting things going on with blockchain right now, trying to solve some of these problems of um, scarcity and uh, and and um, you know reproducibility and all that stuff. So I think that's one of the most interesting things going on right now in terms of the business of art. I'm in a dark place about technology right now. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't. I don't think I don't think of a particular I don't think of a particular technology right now that's super I don't know. I That's fair. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think for me the thing that's interesting is to think about and this goes back to what I was saying about, you know, forms of new media that people are only starting to explore as expressive mediums such as games, VR, mixed reality, is that there's this notion of ownership that goes along with an object that is, you know, as you were saying, exploded when you get to digital art. And when you talk about democratization, I think you need to talk about um, different kinds of support. And the idea of materially supporting an artist by purchasing an object, which is then your property, actually feels antiquated when you think about um, how that could port to these new expressive media. And so one of the things that I'm excited, cautiously optimistic about is to see how those economies develop and how support, you know, that they're, you know, artists who are developing their own cryptocurrency that you can, you know, use as credits to buy specifically their artwork. And so that's a way to support an artist using a new technological platform. I'm also honestly really excited about the sort of uh, retro HTML art that is <laughs> coming coming uh, full force back around right now. All of those graphics from the 90s are, and the MySpace pages are all right. getting looking really hip again. I'm, I'm just really excited too that we've actually been in a technological space for long enough that people can make art that is quoting things that are decades old using these new uh, tools and these new forms of media. I do think one thing that's sort of interesting is maybe not, it's more platform than technology, um, is uh, Patreon or Patreon, pa Patreon, thank you. Um, and um, Kickstarter is doing the drip thing, which I don't know if people are familiar with, but the to me the premise of that is quite interesting, which is that it's this idea of micro-patronage. And it's not so much focused on supporting specific output that you end up owning as it is supporting what they're doing. And one thing that's super interesting to me is that a gallery in New York called Postmasters is doing a Patreon campaign right now because the realities of the gallery scene in New York are just so, I mean, they're just completely untenable at this point. And it's an amazing gallery. They've been around for 20 years. They have an amazing program. And they just sort of said, we can't keep doing what we do unless we have some sort of support that goes beyond the transactional, right? And so to me, 
Like, I'm not sure if it's going to take. I hope it does. Like, I have enthusiastically signed up to support, you know, a few different creators and or organizations that are making things that I'm interested in and hoping that more people do that too. Um, but I think if there is like some, if there was like a wave of a model like that, that took hold, that could be really interesting as well. Because I think that when you're focused on the transactional, you're thinking a lot about what people are going to buy more than what you want to create. And again, and it sounds like, it sounds so like flaky or whatever, but I really like, I do believe like in the idea of the artist and their practice and like that work being important and trying to kind of carve out room for it that mm-hmm. isn't focused on the transaction is, is really important. And I think it's important for our culture and our society as well, that we feel that it's necessary to support that kind of activity. Mm-hmm. And we very much are not like that right now. Yeah. Absolutely. I think the the offline, sort of online, offline piece will be interesting with like, uh, I mean, Matt, who's the curator here, was showing me an app where you can kind of go in and take a quiz or say what type of art you like, and it'll show you which galleries to go to in certain cities mm-hmm. or connecting, you know, show you even I think there's some potential where you could show where artist studios are and you could go connect with those those artists. So it's it's less about sort of, oh, there's this art show that's opening and, you know, you should go to it. SF MoMA has a new uh, exhibition, but rather, Hey, I actually do follow this artist on Instagram and here's another artist like it, or I'm in their city. Like where's their studio? But you should also always go to SF. Always go. Always right. go to SF. I think we have time for like two questions. <laughs> questions from the audience. All right, let's go in the back. Hi. Um, so I, I love art. I, you know, I have art in my apartment. Uh, my friend's an artist, so she lets me like host her art until she sells it. But I think that my biggest thing with finding art, buying art is the process. It's okay. I might know an artist and I might love an artist, but it's like, okay, I find a piece that I want. What room in my apartment does it go in? How do I hang it up? Like, where does this go? And so to me, that whole process of actually getting the art into my, like off the, whether it's a website or a museum into my apartment is like, it's too much for me. It's like, I wish there was a tech technology that could figure that out. I just wondered if you guys had any thoughts on that. The unsexy side. No, we actually did a survey, found that people's art sits on their floor for four months before they hang it. Four months. And the number one reason they don't buy their next art piece is because they haven't hung the previous one. So, so I don't know, um, any, any quick thoughts I'll just, I'll say, um, I'm married to a preparator, so I don't consider installation to be the unsexy side. <laughs> oh, um, sorry. Very best. <laughs> but um, what, I, what I will say is, you know, this is a place where I think because we have so much technology, we actually look to technology to solve our problems problems when uh in fact the problem could be solved by human beings you know hammer and a nail hammer and a nail or you know there there are people um who actually have uh you know companies that do exactly this kind of work and i think that there's also some skill sharing that could go on you know that um there 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 are certain best practices um and i so i think that that is a part of the art world that needs to be uh, more accessible. You could even imagine training courses for new collectors on, you know, um, if you if you live in San Francisco and you want to make sure that this is installed in an earthquake safe way, here here's a here's the hanging bracket, you know, and that there's um there's not a lot of that training. It's a big I mean it's a it's a big pain point. I mean I just moved sixty pieces of art from New York and I and they're 
all leaning up against our walls <laughs> with all the other art that's been leaning up against our walls for months. And um, it was really hard. I mean, I don't have an answer for you. I'm sorry. I'm just validating your experience. Um, <laughs> because I'm an arts professional and I do not have my shit together. It's really hard. And and I will tell you, the moving was very interesting because I have a collection that is like hugely sentimental to me and important. And uh, there are three pieces in it that are actually worth money. And the rest of it is really not worth a lot of money. And it would have cost me thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to move it in the way that I would have liked to have moved it. And so I do think, to your point, like finding someone who is a preparator and knowing what to look for, mm -hmm. it's it's not it's not easy. I'll give you a simple answer. There is this actually solution called Hang Smart, where it lets you like shift it within a six inch circle, so you don't have to get the nail exactly right. <sighs> so you have a little bit of freedom in terms of where you put it up. Uh, All right, Velcro sticky tabs. There you go. Other questions? Here we'll go there and then here. So a fantastic panel. Thank you so much. It's been really great listening to you. Um, I am a believer. I obviously am here because I love art. Um, I was also in the tech world for 30 years and then about mm -hmm. five years ago decided that I wanted to be in the art world and I'm now 100% immersed in the arts. Um, and I, I still feel that there's very much of an us and them dialogue. I feel like this was an us forum and them is still the technology folks and there's this talk about uh, commercialization and sales and tools and methods and and mediums but there's very little talk of the meaning and I feel like the tech community is missing the meaning and the value of art and unless and until we educate them on that um, you know they're not going to be buying no matter how much we try and how sexy our tools and techniques are so I don't know if the panel would like to yeah. comment on that well, I mean, I would just ask it, you know, I, I rack my brain, honestly, I've been involved in multiple small nonprofit art spaces in the city in my time here. And I rack my brain trying to find ways to get people in the doors of these small galleries, because I do feel, you know, in the mission in particular, which is where I live, there's a major disconnect between the artists who've been there for a long time and the technologists who are moving in. And I don't think that people are disinterested. They just don't have the vocabulary. And I think that it's interesting because it's not, I and mean, that goes back to the thing that I was saying about museums meeting visitors where they are, you know, that I think in general, um, you know, the art world needs to figure out how to meet new potential audiences where they are in multiple ways and understand that they're always going to be the dialogues for the purists, but that there need to be multiple entry points. You know, there can never be enough entry points. Yeah. Yeah. Could I kick a, a question back? Because I'm curious. So I, I will say I'm the resident nerd on the panel. Like I am a programmer. So um, I am equal parts tech community and art community. And I'm curious. So I hear that. I hear that a lot. Like the how do we get the tech world a little bit more interested in art? Is that question basically coming from the fact that like they're the money center? Or is it coming from the fact that like you know, we are the yes. predominant population. <laughs> yes, well, we want your money. Because, we want to pay our rent. Well, be, uh, because 
in in fairness, like you gotta. you do kind of have to examine that a little bit, right? Because like not every programmer walking down the street is a millionaire, right? They don't have to be a millionaire to buy art. That's true. But, I mean, but, like, but, I, but my point would be like, what is different between them and the average consumer? Like, I think they're just microcosmic of the grander problem, which is that culturally there's a lack of appreciation. Yeah. I mean, I do it. think that there's a big, I mean, I think that there's a broader issue a little bit, what I was talking about earlier in terms of, people being very focused on utility and or appreciation. Like there are these very sort of, you know, quote unquote pragmatic things that are driving purchasing decisions. And I, you know, again, I also think that we're coming out of, you know, several decades of the arts being devalued. Uh, There's no arts education. Um, People scoff at someone if they get a liberal arts degree, I, you know, it's and it's hard. Like it's having an impact. I've seen it. You know, I've seen it myself. And so, yeah. um, I think I really do think that there has to be a big shift in order for that to happen. And we're not quite but, heading in that direction right now. But there's also <laughs> like the th- there's also an ethos in the tech crowd that you don't pay more than ten dollars for anything ever, right? Like there, like whether it's the open source thing or whatever. Like when you're talking to digital natives, like you know, it's tough to get them to pay four ninety nine for an app. So like it's 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 a little broader problem. I and I agree. Like I think the I think the solution is that they need to understand the value of mm-hmm. it. And I think that like one way one way that I think would be interesting to get there is um, you know, the Silicon Valley nerds like have this um, undying fetish for like, what is the fastest, most efficient, most creative way we can solve a problem, Mm -hmm. which by the way is exactly what artists do. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing about, you know, the improvisational skills, the innovation skills, the skills to think outside the box. And I think that that is really where these two worlds come together and that it's a lot less about an object and a lot more about an idea set. And that's, you know, I mean, it's why, you know, we have so many different media channels at SFMOMA that we're constantly communicating through is because it's about dialogue. And I think part of it too is to kind of counter what I think of as the tyranny of likes on the <coughs> internet and in online platforms that um, a lot of the most, you know, revolutionary artwork in throughout all of art history was wildly unpopular in its time. And so if you expect to have a critical dialogue that's not fueled by popularity or uh, algorithmically, but is actually challenging people, then, um, you know, I think, and I, I don't know how to move beyond that in the digital space other than to support critical dialogue on the platforms that I have control over. But that's at least, it's at least a start. And I think trying to broadcast a value set and what brings us together, because the city feels very divided right now. And I don't think that we need to be. I think that we can come together around things like innovation. I, I think the pop culture and the relatedness piece, I mean, you talked about people like cars, show them cars, but also like what you did where you brought in the Silicon Valley stars to, yeah. you know, talk about and kind of make fun of the airplanes. Like, that's probably a great way to get the tech community in. Okay. Oh my gosh. We're not going to be able to do this. I'm going to go for you. And then after that, no, no, oh. behind, sorry. He, he opened it <laughs> for it. And then afterwards you can come up and ask people questions. Uh, she had a good one too. I can tell. All right, fine. You both ask, and then we'll answer it. So I have uh, a quick comment and then a question. The comment is, um, I think, specifically in the Bay Area, we're obsessed with creating um, 
culture around, you know, tech, uh, people who've made money in tech and kind of getting them to be cultured. If you're not cultured, you're not cultured. I mean, and there's an obsession just, and no, because- You should go read this guy, Stefan Simkowitz. He talks so, all about- no, And the reason why I'm saying that is because I have friends where, you know, uh, interior designers who are architects and they, they'll, 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 They'll tell him, but you know, I have a, a tech multimillionaire, and he needs he needs to design his home, and he has this a budget, and he's like, yeah, just fill the walls with anything you think will look great. So if you if that's the mentality, that's not you know good for them, but that's not somebody who's specifically cultured or who has an interest in art. That's somebody who's I have this beautiful home. I need to throw art on the walls. Let me do this. So I think What's we're obsessed question? with that because they're the consumers and people who have money in the Bay Area now. Or it's it's fairly tech. And my question is, considering that we are in the Bay Area, there's been a max a mass uh, exodus of artists, right? So what does that do? And this is the question for the panel is, what is this doing to the cultural vitality of the city and of the region if we don't have artists? Mm-hmm. How many people of us yeah. are friends with a painter or a sculptor? Um, these people are leaving the Bay Area. They're going to L.A. That's why L.A. is like the new hotspot, blah, blah, blah. Um, but... What does that do to the overall culture of San Francisco and the Bay Area if there are no artists? This is a loaded question. You know, I'm, I'm going I'm to give you I'm 15 just seconds. Say, 15 pre- seconds. Preach. It's, preach. Ba- it's bad. <laughs> Not good. Uh, it murders it. I'm a self-hating technologist. I mean, yeah. it's the, you can't deny it, right? Like if you t- if you take the the artist out of an area, it's going to get less cool. But what happens to the world when all the pandas die? Oh gosh! All right. <laughs> That's- Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Quick plug for our project. Uh, SF Mama's podcast is called Raw Material. It just won its second Muse Award since our relaunch last year. And you can find it wherever. Thank you. And you can find it wherever you find podcasts. I also have two buttons uh, for Raw Material for the first two people who come up and talk to me after the panel. Um, I actually just interviewed Deborah and Andy Rappaport on 20 by 200's podcast. They're the founders of the Minnesota Street Project, which is a really amazing... Yes, people know about that. It's really, they're so inspiring and they really sprang into action to sort of address exactly the problem that that gentleman was talking about in terms of artists leaving and galleries leaving. And I really think that they're doing amazing things. So they were on, it's episode three of our podcast. um, So give it a listen. French Girls and Mini Canvas. Check out Mini Canvas. It'll be it'll be live on the App Store in a couple months uh, and dedicated to teaching people how to appreciate art. Thanks for listening to State of the Art. Tune in next week for our conversation with Julia Kaczynski, director of New Inc., a creative ecosystem founded by New Museum that aims to foster cultural values, not just capital. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it. Leaving a review is super easy and it helps listeners like you discover the podcast. Oh yeah, and don't forget to check us out at State of the Art on Twitter for behind the scenes photos, a sneak peek to next week's episode, and really cool art videos you're going to want to show your friends. Until next week, this is your host, Ethan Appleby, signing off from State of the Art.